This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Government agencies at all levels require and therefore procure goods and services in order to meet their respective missions. The California Department of General Services, DGS, does just that for the state of California. It is the business manager for the state. It helps California state agencies better serve the public by providing a variety of goods and services to state agencies through innovative procurement and acquisition solutions, creative real estate management and design, environmentally friendly transportation, and funding for the construction of safe schools. How does the California Department of General Services support state agencies and their missions? What is DGS doing to create new and innovative products for state agencies? And what does the future hold for the California Department of General Services? I'll explore these questions and so much more with its director, Dan Kim. Dan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be on this. Uh, Dan, would you briefly discuss the mission and continued evolution of the California Department of General Services, also known as DGS? Sure. A DGS was formed in 1963 uh, with a mission to deliver timely, cost-effective services and products, while also protecting the state's best interests. So on one hand, we're a customer service organization, and our goal is to meet the needs of our sister departments. But on the other hand, we're an oversight or control function over these same partners or customers. So there's an inherent tension there, this customer service and kind of control oversight function. Um, When we were formed, it wasn't around then, but I probably guess that we had some goals. Uh, One may have been to be more independent and not beholden to political pressures or interests. We probably were um, formed so that we could standardize operating procedures, be more uniform in how we do contracting and procurement and leases and the like, and also to be really like a steady ship. So we would be swayed by passing fads, but uphold some standards um, for the state. We want to be standardized, but we don't want to have a bunch of red tape um, that prevents us from being customer service oriented. We want to be cost effective. That's true, but... We have to avoid being penny-wise, pound-foolish. And expert judgment is great, but sometimes uh, it's easy for us to just tell folks to do it because we say so. We don't want that either. And we want to be steady, but we can't afford to be stagnant as a department. So we know um, with the changing nature of government, with the speed of change, we have to be a bit different. So... While we need to be independent, we realize we have to be more collaborative and solicit 
input from our customers so we can all make more informed decisions. We want to be standardized, but we have to be more complicated to provide that counsel and advice to mitigate risk and maximize benefits for all of us. And cost effect is important, but we also have to think about issues like sustainability and be more holistic and factor externalities and downstream effects. And expert judgment is important, but we have to back that up with data and be more evidence-based. And being steady is important, but we also have to continuously improve our people, processes, systems, and cultures. We have to really think about the larger goals that our governor has, our state legislature has, and align our administration operations with those large policy goals and agendas. I'd like to understand more of the operational footprint of DGS. How is it organized? What are your core lines of business and your overall budget? Sure. Well, DGS has a budget of roughly $1.3 billion a year and somewhere around 3,600 staff. As far as how we're structured, we have seven different divisions that provide some service or oversight function at a statewide level. So, for example, we have our real estate services division, and they do all the construction of state office buildings for all state departments, and they also manage about 19 million square feet of lease space. We have another division uh, called the Facility Management Division that manages and maintains about 18 million square feet of office space in our 58 state-owned buildings. We have a procurement division that manages statewide procurement functions and conducts oversight of all the departments that we delegate procurement authority to. Our internal services division is comprised of a number of different branches. They include the state publisher that does all the publishing for, for the state departments, our Office of Fleet and Asset Management. Um, they do oversight uh, over the state's fleet. We have the Office of Public School Construction. We have the Building Standards Commission that develops and promulgates all the regulations related to building codes. That, those are all in the in Internal Services Division. We also have the Division of State Architect, which is responsible for reviewing all the plans for school construction and for all policy and regulations related to ADA compliance statewide. Our Office of Administrative Hearings conducts administrative hearings on behalf of several departments in all public schools in California. And we have an Office of Sustainability that advises state departments, helps them implement more sustainable practices. And we also have several other divisions within our department that are more operational uh, and provide enterprise-wide functions. These include our administrative division, our internal audits, our strategic planning group, our public affairs, our legislative affairs, and our legal services. So, Dan, what are your duties and responsibilities as the director of the California Department of General Services? As director, I try to set the vision and direction for the department. Um, I'm really trying to align our operations with the larger policy goals of our governor. To this end, I, what I've tried to do is start a one-year strategic planning cycle. So every January, we publish our one-year strategic plan. We've been doing this since 2016, so we have developed five annual plans so far. So what we do is have each division spend a couple of months identifying their goals. I then review those goals, provide my input, and then we narrow down and refine that list of goals. For each approved goal, the division then identifies somewhere around four to eight critical path steps that serve as milestones to completion, and then we track the progress of each of those goals on a monthly basis and see whether those critical path steps have been completed as scheduled. Now, even though we have these um, ambitious goals, 
I don't intend to complete every single one of those goals every year. In fact, I'm actually shooting for 70% of those goals to be completed because I want to give the division some latitude to stretch themselves and be more ambitious with their goals. But at the end of the year, what we do is we publish a year in review that identifies all the strategic goals that each division actually completed. Um, and since we've initiated this process um, in 2016, we've completed 186 strategic goals. And I really doubt that we would have made this kind of progress if we had just one five-year plan during that time period. Now, some folks have expressed concerns in the past that we can't do a strategic goal in a year because it's going to take three years and there's no way to condense it into one year. And we decided that's fine. Make it a three-year goal, but uh, identify what your year one goal is uh, to get there. And then your year two goal the next year. And then the following year will be the third uh, year goal and then the completion of that final project. So chunking this, these goals out has really helped us. And we've been able to kind of bridge the gap between having a one-year plan and having kind of a larger strategic goal. Now, I spent a lot of time on this annual strategic planning process. Probably about 20% of my time is dedicated to this. And then I do a mid-year kind of assessment. Of where are we with respect to those goals and what more do they need in terms of help to get those goals out across the finish line? And this kind of biannual uh, kind of town hall process has really promoted greater levels of engagement with our staff and more trust. And it's really helped promote alignment within DGS so we know what direction we're heading as a department. I also spent a lot of time identifying ways to operationalize and execute our governor's policy goals. And that means I have to work closely with the governor's office to translate ideas into policies and action. Just to give you a sense, Governor Newsom has issued 22 executive orders in the past year alone. And our department has a lead role in five of those. So my job is to ensure that DGS gets these executive orders completed on a timely basis, but also in a constructive way. In addition, I spent a lot of time serving on state boards and commissions. I'm also on the state allocation board, which makes decisions regarding the allocation of school bond proceeds to school districts. In addition, I chair a number of internal department committees. DGS has often been activated uh, for the state operations center to conduct emergency procurements and handle other planning and logistical matters. Um, and finally, I spend a lot of time on the executive board as a member of the National Association of State Chief Administrators. And I'm uh, serving the first of my two-year term as NASA's president. Great, great. So, you know, with such a portfolio, such an expansive portfolio, what are your top management challenges and how have you sought to address those challenges? You know, we have to balance the demands of our customers. They want us to be better, faster, cheaper. And at the same time, I've got this oversight function that I'm responsible for. There's this creative tension there that we have to do both really well. And it's not an either or thing. We have to come up with something that's win-win or some third way. So things I'm always constantly trying to think about are how do we treat departments fairly, but also differently, given that they're also different from each other? You know, what do we need to standardize and where can we be more flexible? I also have to think about how do we prevent bad behavior from state departments? without adversely impacting the general public that's receiving services downstream? And how do we green our state fleet while also meeting, you know, state department's vehicle specifications and requirements? And also, you know, understanding that they have budget constraints and limitations. We also have want to build the most energy efficient buildings uh, for a changing workforce. But how do we do that quickly and cost effectively? 
And how do we provide a lot of advice and counsel and guidance without getting misinterpreted or being thrown under the bus? This isn't a zero-sum game. We have to be Pareto optimal here. Um, so setting this kind of expectation within our DGS culture that we have to provide both customer service and serve in this control oversight function, I think that's really important. One of the tools I use is to employ a governance model so that we're not making decisions in a vacuum. So like I said, we have a number of internal and external standing committees and work groups at DGS. Most of these work groups are comprised uh, largely of our customers, and we help empower them to help us prioritize and problem solve. So at DGS, what we do is we, we may identify a problem, we may speak to the larger goals or outcomes that we want to generate. We'll even come up with uh, proposed options and recommendations. But once we do that, we want to have a dialogue with our customers and help have them help us think through these problems and identify the best options for them and for the rest of the state. And I found that this approach has worked really well. I found that our customers have recognized that we do have a control oversight role and that the outcomes and desires that we have are necessary for the state. But in, in having them be part of the process, they now have skin in the game and they own the policies as much as we do. And that makes it a lot easier for us to implement and execute these policies. This trust and transparency generates a lot more engagement and better results. So uh, other things that, you know, I've done to address uh, our challenges, we're showing people exactly what we're doing to improve customer service and our oversight functions. It's really tangible, and people are very proud to see that, hey, listen, look at our new strategic plan. Look at, look at all the great things that we're doing. So I'm trying to address some of these more existential questions about our value at DGS. But then, you know, we also have really practical things that we have to address. They may be more internal focused. But, for example, we've got about $3 billion worth of deferred maintenance in the state. And that means how do we figure out what to fix? How do we prioritize whether we repair an elevator at a cost of $20 million or the 20-year-old uh, carpeting next to a constitutionally elected officer? How do we ensure that roughly a quarter million of state departmental staff in over 100 different departments actually follow the, the rules and procedures that we set forth? Because we can't individually counsel each one of them. And how much of our time are we going to spend preventing problems, making systemic fixes, versus responding to immediate needs or crises? Because we have resource constraints. Also, I have to think about how, how much do I charge my customers for services that we have a monopoly on, right? And how do we create the right incentives uh, for my staff to perform in a cost-effective manner when really we're the only market in town in some cases? So again, like I said, as with the other kind of existential questions I, I identified, many of these things are solved or resolved through our governance process within DGS. I form separate work groups to cover different types of topics. They're chaired by the subject lead uh, and comprise mostly of our internal customers. Uh, those are kind of the things that we're doing or I'm trying to do to address some of the challenges that we're facing uh, at DGS. So, Dan, along with the challenges you just outlined, what has surprised you most in your role as director of DGS? Well, honestly, um, I was surprised by the culture within DGS, and I mean that in a good way. You know, when I was in another diff uh, state department, everyone had assumed that DGS was more like the Oracle of Delphi or the wizard behind the curtain. There's this thought that DGS and our, the DGS executives were really remote and autocratic, 
uh, and resistant to change. Like we were the bureaucracy of bureaucracies and departments wouldn't come to us because we would just say no to them. When I came on board, I immediately realized that was just fiction, completely wrong. The DGS managers and the staff here are incredibly professional. They have this amazing can-do attitude and they're willing to change but they have to have a good reason to do so. So the things that I found really hard to do in my previous stints in state and local government, I found were relatively easy to do here. People want to know why you want to change, but then when you come up with a good reason to do that, and if I could articulate a vision and show I was committed to making the organization better, not just for our customers, but also for them, they would be on board. And so I was really happy, and I found that our folks really are change agents in our department. I'm really, really proud of our executive team at DGS. I think it's the finest executive team in the state of California. They have a diversity of experience, incredible levels of knowledge, and integrity initiatives, some of the most that I've seen anywhere in government. Another thing I, I didn't anticipate within DGS was that a lot of people at DGS think that other state departments are really aware of all the state administrative procedures and practices. Uh, we just assume that everyone knows these rules because we know them, and that's just not the case. In many state departments, they rely on a handful of in-house staff to provide all the administrative or operational expertise. Many of these staff are great at what they do, but we've had a lot of turnover in the state recently because of retirement. So there seems to be a lack of technical knowledge in some of these departments. And as a result, sometimes things fall between the cracks. And when those things happen, it's often easy to blame us because we're on the tail end of things. So, for example, I've received... Uh, many calls about urgent, important contracts that DGS is holding up for review. Then once we start investigating, we come to find that the department hasn't even sent us the contract for review yet. So there is a disconnect. Within state departments, there's a disconnect between the program staff and their admin staff. There's often a disconnect between the staff and the executive teams within their departments. And I'm not saying this to criticize my sister departments, uh, but rather just to recognize that sometimes we overestimate the technical knowledge within departments or the communication flow within those departments. Also overestimated that the departments know the best, shortest way of getting something done. Uh, what I found uh, with other state departments is oftentimes they're saying no internally before it ever gets to us, and they're creating a lot more red tape. And so we're really trying to find out or share with them some of the shortcuts that are allowable, uh, the more expeditious path, because we're aware of those, and many times the departments aren't. So it's really important for us to provide more counsel and advice to their administrative staff, the program staff, but also to the executive team and the line staff within those departments. With this type of approach that we are really trying to uh, promote, I think departments have seen that we're much more approachable and willing to provide that kind of counsel and advice now. So, Dan, given your experience, what characteristics make an effective leader? And perhaps you can share with us some of the leadership principles that guide your efforts and how you lead. So, um, caveat on no management guru, right? Um, it's more kind of a trial by fire or uh, learning from my mistakes. But as far as like general practices, I've got some general practices and then some steps I try to follow. So, the general practices, um, I'd like to be interest-based. I'm a big fan of getting to yes. Uh, I took a negotiation analysis course in grad school and then ended up being a TA in that class and really learned about how to focus on interest versus positions. And trying to live by that, I found that that's really helped mitigate conflict and resolve issues. 
I'm also a big fan of project management. I'd like to take a project management approach to all problem solving, want to put things in a framework uh, with critical path steps, come up with timeframes. I find that uh, that type of discipline really helps get things done. I also really want to hire the best people I can get. I'm really selective about who we hire, spend a lot of time on the recruitment and the interview process. And I'm looking for that right combination of attitude and aptitude. But if I had to choose between one or the other, I would choose attitude. Most people can learn to do stuff. Uh, most things to learn are not rocket science, but it's much harder to shape or shift attitude. So in some cases, I kept positions vacant uh, because I couldn't find that right person. So I think those are some general principles I try to uphold. As far as kind of my working approach, uh, how to get things done. Um, I came up with like this eight-step path that I, I try to follow. Um, but one is creating a sense of urgency. You need to make a case for change and be able to answer the so what or why question first. That's, a, I think, fundamental. Two is provide that kind of vision or opportunity. I think people need to know, what are you talking about? What's it going to look like at the end of, of the road? People have to see that. And then people have to see the incentives for them. You know, what's in it for me? I think that's very motivating, and I think we often fail to explain that. We may talk about the good of the state or the good of the department, but what's actually in it for me? And in it for me may be this is going to make your life easier. It could give you promotional opportunities. It could make your staff happier. But I think we need to speak to the, the personal interest as well. We also have to think and speak to resources, and I want to make sure that the people I have have the tools to succeed. I think that really boosts morale, but it also takes away a lot of excuses if you give them what they ask for. And like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of project management and planning, so I like to chunk things out to manageable blocks. And then I think what's important is give people the latitude to come up with their own timeframes, but they have to tell you what those timeframes are. And I find out that Based on my own experience, people are harder on themselves as far as coming up with timeframes than if you would come up with timeframes for them. And then I think it's really important to have some level of accountability and make very clear to everyone who needs to do what by when. So I'm a big fan of memorializing action items via minutes or something right after a meeting. And I think it's important also to have metrics. You know, what gets measured gets done, so we have to figure out what's really important to measure measure it and not measure something else that's not as important. And then last but not least, I think it's really important to honor achievement. And honoring or recognizing staff doesn't have to be formal or costly, but it just has to get done. A thank you note, uh, a shout out, uh, something like that goes a long way. What are the strategic priorities for the California Department of General Services? I'll ask its director, Dan Kim, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. 
The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center report responding to global health crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm your host, Michael Keegan, and my guest today is Dan Kim, Director of the California Department of General Services. Dan, the California Department of General Services leverages the buying power of the state uh, so government can negotiate prices and get products and services at a better rate, if you will. Um, To that end, would you outline your strategic vision for DGS and your key priorities? It's a really good question, Um, involving kind of like our procurement goals. And I've got about six main priorities uh, for procurement. One is we really want to leverage our state's purchasing power. And when I say that, it's not just about getting low cost, but I want to make sure that what we do with procurement is aligned with larger policy goals of the Newsom administration. We have to think beyond just cost and see how our purchasing power can nudge vendors, move markets, and make departments do the right things. So, for example, we want to make sure that we have sustainable purchasing. That's another kind of priority. Uh, how can we be better stewards of natural resources and reduce greenhouse gas emissions? How can we reduce carbon, our carbon footprint by what we buy? So, for example, this takes a lot of kind of effort and thought. Uh, it's not so easy to think about uh, reducing our, our carbon footprint with different types of commodities. So one commodity may seem like it's more environmentally friendly, but when you factor in the travel and transport, maybe it's not. Uh, we also have to think about the downstream impact of some of the purchases we make uh, with respect to the environment and uh, energy use. And then also things like we can reduce emissions by buying newer and more efficient equipment, but then are we actually creating more carbon by associated with the production of those new equipment? So we have to think through all of this stuff, uh, but we don't have the time to just navel gaze. One of the things that we've been looking at recently is food purchases. So, for example, I had our staff look at what kind of energy or carbon uh, savings we would generate if, hypothetically, Department of Corrections moved from beef to poultry. So they did the analysis and they said, if we no longer purchase beef for corrections and just use poultry, we would save as much carbon as equal to 8,600 gas power vehicles. That's huge, right? Now, can you imagine if we went from beef to impossible burgers, what the carbon reductions would be? Uh, it'd be amazing. Now, that said, I know that's not going to happen anytime soon, but we've been talking to the corrections agency, and we're looking at ways we can ship away at reducing the carbon associated with food. Fleet is another area where we're working in. Uh, we've gone ahead as a state and effectively banned the purchase of gas-powered sedans. I think we're the only state in the country to do this. We've done the analysis. We know that there's enough product out there to meet our market needs. And then we're also finding that with electric vehicles, they have a lower maintenance cost, also lower emissions, improves air quality, which impacts public health. So there are these downstream positive externalities. 
And we're thinking that by committing to electric vehicles and saying to uh, OEMs that we are all in, we can sway car manufacturers and generate the demand so they will build the supply. So that's kind of what we're doing in terms of sustainable purchasing. Uh, that's one of our major priorities. Another priority for our governor and for procurement is prescription drugs. Governor Newsom tasked with us with finding ways to lower the cost of prescription drugs. So we're investigating all options right now. This is really tricky. It's incredibly complicated. But in the course of our research, we found that California, our department, has really been able to generate low costs already. And we've been able to do this not just because we've been lucky and not just because we have a lot of volume purchasing, but because we've worked with our state departments to buy drugs, come up with a common drug formulary so that we have more leverage when we're negotiating with drug manufacturers. So we get really low drug prices on some of the costliest drug prescriptions. But we can't rest on our laurels. We still want to push further. There are going to be other opportunities to leverage our purchasing power. And we're thinking that by working in conjunction with local governments, we can lower, further lower the cost of drugs for us and definitely lower the cost for local governments. By working with other governmental entities, we think we can disrupt the oligopolistic tendencies of drug manufacturers and distributors and wholesalers. And we can do that without sacrificing outcomes or quality of care. Another area, the fourth area in procurement or purchasing that I'm looking at is developing an e-marketplace. Because right now, purchasing goods for state buyers is really time-consuming. It's really complicated. And we want to simplify the purchasing experience for them. So if we can develop an e-marketplace platform so that our state staff have more of an Amazon-like experience, that's going to make procurement a lot easier for them. Now, this is going to take some time to implement, but the technology is available now. So we just need to get our resources available uh, to make this happen. Uh, but we're moving in this direction right now. We're looking to procure some technologies in the near future to help us in this direction. A fifth area uh, for us is small business development. Small business is the engine of growth in California. So we want to make sure that we promote the development of California small businesses and disabled veteran business enterprises. We want to make sure there's a level playing field for them and that they know about all the opportunities available to them. That's why in our state, we have a commitment to have 25% of all of our contract spend be on small businesses and 3% of our total spend to be on disabled veteran business enterprises. To make that happen, we have to do a lot of outreach to small businesses and disabled veteran business enterprises. We've provided a lot of technical assistance to make them competitive, to get them certified and the like, but we need to do more. And so we're looking at ways to leverage all the data that we have with respect to procurement and find out where some of the gaps and opportunities are to pair small businesses and disabled veteran business enterprises with state buyers. Some of the things we're also looking at are involved legislation, but uh, personally, I don't want to use that big stick in, unless I've taken away or kind of exhausted all of our administrative measures. But we have created some incentives already. So, for example, in our construction projects, and these are, you know, sometimes these are contracts for half a billion dollars. We have requirements that the builders have a small business employment plan uh, and use a number of small businesses, and that's been very successful. A sixth area that uh, I really want to focus on with respect to procurement is professional development of our procurement staff. And we have a great team in California. I think we get the best procurement uh, team in the nation. But a lot of our procurement staff are retiring, 
and the professions dealing with a lot of change because of the technological innovations and the speed of change. So for our procurement officials to be successful, they have to have a huge, a whole complement of skills and experiences. I mean, the ideal procurement official has to know something about project management, contract law, have some subject matter expertise, maybe even know something about game theory or marketing. And that's a lot to ask of anyone. It's not like you can get a degree in college in procurement, right? So what we're looking to do is how do we develop that kind of coursework for them? What can we do in terms of continuous education? So one of the things that I want to do is work more closely with my colleagues in NASCA and also with our sister association, NASPO, which is a national association of state procurement officers, to see if we can develop some of these trainings and make them available to all levels of staff in California. And Dan, what are the key internal and external drivers and trends that have shaped and informed your strategy? And perhaps you could outline for us the five strategic themes that frame your overall strategy. Yeah, I think I'll do that. But let me kind of start with some of the external forces that are impacting us and how we're trying to address those. So I think of three in particular. One is technological change. I think I read somewhere that my cell phone has more computing power than NASA had in 1969. That's amazing. So obviously automation is changing the nature of work, uh, but it's also setting greater expectations from the public and from our own customers. So, you know, if I can do this on Amazon, why can't I do that with state purchasing? You know, why does everything have to be paper processed in the state? Uh, and why can't I do my transactions on the internet? I mean, this is what people expect now, right? It's the new normal. And if we in government don't meet those expectations, we're going to lose the trust and credibility of our customers. So it's really important for us to to think about that. We also are faced with this change in our workforce. Uh, I think I read somewhere that for the first time ever, we actually have four generations of employees working side by side with each other. Uh, They all have different preferences and expectations. And we're not as nimble in the public sector about accommodating those types of differences. But we need to figure this out, or we are not going to be able to recruit and retain people for jobs. We want to make sure that the younger generation wants to work in the public sector. One of the good things, I think, about uh, the younger generation, the millennials and uh, Generation Z, is that we're seeing that they really want jobs that are mission-driven. And I think that's something that the public sector can really afford them. But in order for them to feel mission-driven, they have to feel like they are making a difference. So We have to be more responsive and be more rapid in a generating outcome. The third area I think that we really need to think about is climate change. I mean, global warming is real. There are dire existential consequences for us all. So what we buy, how we travel, how we drive, what we turn on, what power source we use, that's all going to make or break us in the next decade. So we have to be better stewards of our natural resources and build sustainability and resilience into our decision-making process. It's just as important to think about sustainability as it is to think about cost or quality of speed. So at DGS, we really are fundamentally changing how we think about these things. Like I said, I keep saying this, we have to align what we do operationally with larger policy goals and agendas. But at the same time, we have to support our original mission and purpose. There's that creative tension, like I keep saying. And so what I try to do is really promote these five strategic direction themes to align our entire department and to make sure that all of our staff kind of know what direction we're going in. So what are these themes? I mentioned them briefly, but one is to be more collaborative. How do we 
solicit input from our own customers and stakeholders so that we can make better decisions for all of us. It's really important to hear our customers out. We can't take a one-size-fits-all approach anymore. It's really important for us to be consultative. We need to provide counsel and advice so we can mitigate risk and maximize benefits. Uh, we've seen a wave of retirements within state governments. And like I said, it's depleted a lot of state departments with some of their administrative expertise. Uh, we at DGS fortunately still have a lot of that, so we need to share our knowledge and take more initiative to provide that technical assistance. Sustainability, uh, that's my holy grail. We in California, we at DGS, we can shape markets uh, given our purchasing power. So we really want to leverage that to promote more environmentally preferable practices and purchases. I also really emphasize being more data-informed. Not data-driven, but data-informed. We have a lot of data. We need to make sense of that data. Uh, so how can we be more evidence-based uh, in terms of our decision-making? Uh, how do we use that decision to prioritize resources, to identify problems, and really focus on what's important? And fifth, uh, the strategic direction is to be effective. We need to continuously improve our people, our processes, our systems, and culture. I call that being relentlessly incremental. Now, I think people think being incremental is it's a bad word, but I, I don't think so. I think if you sustain something like being incremental, you can chip away at things, and soon enough, an incremental improvement over time, it can generate a paradigm shift in terms of behavior. What is the California Department of General Services doing to create new solutions and products for state agencies? I'll ask its director, Dan Kim, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm your host, Michael Keegan, and my guest today is Dan Kim, Director of the California Department of General Services. Uh, Dan, would you tell us more about your efforts to provide innovative and sustainable contracting solutions and tools to state agencies so that they can more efficiently and effectively meet the needs of the citizens of California? And perhaps you could highlight some of the key initiatives you are pursuing in this area of procurement and acquisition. Sure, yeah. I did touch upon this kind of more generally, but maybe I can go to like two specific areas and what we've been doing with those areas. So one is with green energy and the other is with respect to our feet. So um, in terms of green energy, one of the major, I think, accomplishments while I've been here is we inked a 20-year power purchasing agreement with our local utility to power our state buildings using entirely green energy, basically all solar powered. Um, this power purchasing agreement means that over 
half of the electricity that we use in state buildings is solar now. I think we have the largest power purchase agreement of its kind in the nation. Uh, that's enough to power 8,200 homes per year. So that's a huge kind of procurement that we've been able to do. We're also um, actively installing solar and wind systems at state buildings. So we have correctional institutions where we actually have them pretty much solar powered. And we are really uh, emphasizing this so that we can reach a 100% renewable portfolio standard by 2045. That's a long ways out, but we're chipping away at this now. And another procurement that we've done is uh, we switched to renewable diesel in lieu of regular diesel. Uh, we've done this since 2016, where we've required all fleet-owning departments to only use renewable diesel. And that's been a huge benefit. It's resulted in the displacement of 4 million gallons of diesel fuel per year. And the carbon reduction associated with that is amazing. So that's some of the stuff we've been doing uh, with respect to green energy and procurement of green energy. In terms of the fleet, we have some really aggressive goals. We want to get 5 million electric vehicles in California by 2030. That's just not our department, but the entire state and the public. That's really important because transportation is the single largest source of emissions. It's about 40% of emissions related in, in our entire state. So we really are moving to aggressively convert our state's light-duty fleet to electric and install EV charging infrastructure to support those vehicles. I think I mentioned this earlier. We have the only electric vehicle first policy in, I think, of any state in the nation. And we banned the purchase of gas-powered compact mid-size and full-size sedans. But we also want to promote uh, electrical, electric vehicle purchasing at the local level. So one thing we did recently is we spent a year developing a statewide zero-emission bus solicitation. We worked with a number of different mass transit agencies to come up with the solicitation. And now uh, we've issued that, and we have a number of electric buses that are going to be available for mass transit agencies. They don't have to do their own procurement now. They can just piggyback off of our procurement. And because we're the state and we've got all these mass transit agencies on board, we were able to secure incredibly good rates for these electric buses. So it's been really win-win. And I just want to note that the state isn't going to buy any one of these electric vehicle buses. We're doing this on behalf of mass transit agencies. But because we have the larger policy goal of reducing carbon emissions, that's one other area we're doing with respect to fleet. And we also have a, a huge effort in place to get more electric vehicle charging infrastructure out there. We have a goal of getting 6,000 electric vehicle stations out by 2024. And hopefully by the end of this year, we will have 2,000 of these stations out. As a follow-up, what are your plans for 2020 in this area? Yeah, so, uh, you know, again, back to, to green energy and to the fleet, in terms of the green energy, uh, as far as solar installations, we want to get 8 megawatts of install capacity just in 2020 alone. Um, if we do that, we will have installed a, about 75 megawatts of solar energy or solar power in the state. Uh, and we're still shooting for 100 megawatts by 2022. That's really ambitious, but uh, we're getting there. We also have to think, uh, when, we come, when we think about solar power, uh, what do we do when the sun goes down? <laughs> Um, that's really important because we have these evening peak hours that we have to somehow address. 
How do we get clean energy? So what we're doing right now is partnering with some of our local utilities to develop behind the need of renewables that go beyond solar. So, for example, what can we do with respect to getting wind and hydro power purchase agreements so that we can get uh, those clean energy sources during those hours when the sun's not available? We also want to develop battery uh, storage options. Uh, right now, battery storage is costly, but we're hoping that that price drops and that maybe we can even be an early adopter and further help drop the price of uh, battery storage. In terms of fleet, we have done a lot in terms of having a, a green fleet for light-duty vehicles, but we need to drive policies that adopt medium heavy-duty electric fleet vehicles. That's going to be really hard to do, but we're seeing a lot of progress now with manufacturers building half-ton trucks and the like that are electric vehicles. I don't know if you know this. I didn't know this until um, a couple of years ago, but the majority of the purchases that we make in the state for our fleet are actually trucks. So it's going to go a long ways if we can purchase more electric vehicle trucks. But we're also going to have to build a lot more charging ports. So like I said, one of our goals is to uh, build out up to 2,000 ports by the end of this year. So that means if we can build out 600 more charging ports this year, we will have uh, collectively built out 2,000 over the past four years. And we're shooting for 6,000 by 2024. So that's what's in our plans for 2020. So Dan, DGS uh, serves as the real estate manager for the state of California. And your mission is to ensure state land is being used optimally to provide uh, departments with safe and sustainable places to work. Could you tell us more about your efforts in this area? And also, what are you doing to identify state properties suitable for affordable housing? So, you know, in California, we have a real challenge with uh, affordable housing. And our governor is very committed to getting more housing available for the general public. So just to put things into context, at our department, one of our responsibilities is to maintain the statewide property inventory. So what we've been doing for for many years is find out all the properties that state departments have. Sometimes when departments want to surplus their property, they have to then go through us. We then identify departments that may want that property. If other state departments don't want that property, we may make it available to local entities sell it to them for market price. And if none of them are interested in it, then we make it available to nonprofits or for commercial use. But we sell it at market value. Now, we have very few state properties that are ever officially surplus. But I knew for a fact that there were a lot of underutilized state properties. So when we explained this to Governor Newsom and said there may be an opportunity here to use some of that underutilized property for affordable housing sites, he was very excited, and he said, we need to make that happen, and we need to see how we can uh, leverage these sites so that we can maybe create incentives for developers to build affordable housing. So Governor Newsom directed our department to identify all of the unutilized sites. For the past year, we've scanned 44,000 different state parcels to determine which of those might be, uh, make good affordable housing sites. We then had to vet those sites with those state departments that own them. And if those state departments were willing to forego them, we did a second review with the Housing and Community Development Department to determine from a programmatic standpoint which of these sites might make good uh, housing sites. Now, the majority of the, of the sites that we reviewed weren't good for housing, but we did identify many that might be suitable. And right now, 
we have three sites in play for development. One site is in Sacramento, and it's going to be built out as a micro units with no parking, but for people who may be low income that are going to be working in the downtown area. We also have identified a, a site in downtown Stockton, and we're going to build out energy-efficient modular units. Actually, the developer will be building these out, and they'll be building them out to universal design specifications. And that's really going to help with housing for more elderly and disabled, low-income populations. And third, we've got another site, uh, a developer plan to build out in Lake Tahoe. It's going to be up to 300 units. Uh, we're really excited about this. This is just a start, but we hope to develop many more sites in the future. And like I said, what we're doing is by being able to discount, safely discount these sites, or maybe even make them available for free, we can really get these sites to be much more affordable. And because of our efforts here, we're now seeing that local jurisdictions are doing the same type of review with their own property inventory. And that's exactly what Governor Newsom wanted to do. He wanted to lead by example and nudge other localities to follow our lead. Since then, Governor Newsom also tasked us with identifying underutilized state parcels that might make good emergency shelter sites. As you know, we have a homeless crisis in California. Our governor wants to tackle this head on and wants to provide local jurisdictions with options to temporarily house their homeless populations on state land. This effort, though, is just getting underway. So staying on real estate, the real estate portfolio, how are you leveraging technology and innovative tools in this area? So we are using some technologies. Uh, so we have the statewide uh, property index, so we are refining that. We have some of the best GIS experts, uh, geographic information systems experts, to really help us um, develop a tool to almost be like the Redfin or Zillow of state properties. Uh, so that's been very helpful to us to key into different sites and also for emergency uh, preparedness and response. But we also have um, other tools that we're using. For example, we have a construction inspection management branch, uh, and they have uh, implemented this new software called Procore. So they're using this electronic platform to actually do building inspections. They used to do those all on paper with a notepad. And now our staff are actually using tablets to do their inspections. And then they transmit all that data to the cloud. And that's been really useful for our staff because they are constantly on the road and need to have access to their files remotely. We're also um, developing a project management system that's going to replace our existing project management system. Uh, for construction. Uh, the new system is going to interface with our new ERP financial system. So we'll be eventually able to do project tracking, billing, cost projections, all in one system. And that system is going to roll out later this calendar year. Dan, would you tell us more about the mission and history of the National Association of State Chief Administrators? And what is your role in the association? Sure. Uh, the National Association of State Chief Administrators, uh, we call it NASCA. It's a nonprofit 501c3 association that represents people like me, state chief administrators who are in charge of state departments that provide support services to other state agencies. Our NASCA members have oversight over general service functions like fleet, mail, printing, all the things that I mentioned earlier. And NASCA is there for us so that we can help transform state government operations through thought leadership and peer-to-peer -peer, uh, relations and shared knowledge. Now, the association's been around for many years. I think it was formed in 1976. 
But up until seven years ago, the association had dropped to just about seven state members. Since then, though, we've seen a resurgence within NASCA. I think we have about 44 state members participating. I found NASCA to be incredibly beneficial. People in my position generally have short tenures and very complicated jobs. So anything that we can get in terms of information to help us hit the ground running is important. So some of the things that NASCA does, uh, peer-to-peer mentoring, we have chief administrators providing advice and counsel to other chief administrators. We do a lot of research with the help of our corporate sponsors. We also run an annual institute with the help of Harvard faculty who conduct case studies and other learning sessions. And we've since instituted a spring conference, which helps uh, bring us all together with our corporate sponsors to learn about best practices, industry trends, and other emerging issues. Some of the things that NASCA has really emphasized over the past few years is good government. You know, we really want to know who's doing the right things. I know that every state's different, but we really don't want to reinvent the wheel if some other state has already done something and it works. We really want to develop chief administrators and their executive teams. Many chief administrators have come from the private sector, and this is their first foray into government, so helping them. And now we're also trying to help their deputies by branching out to form work groups just for them. So we have a separate work group associated with lean practices. We have a separate work group for our public information officers and another one just for our legislative deputies. We also really, really emphasize that we have a nonpartisan agenda. This is really important for us, and it's a huge source of our strength and credibility. And we're doing a lot more work now with our sister national associations, really seeing how we can connect with each other. In fact, what we do is we look at our our sister national associations, what their top 10 priorities are, and see how we can meld them to form a single top 10 priority for, for NASCA that reflects many of their top priorities. And we do a lot of work with our corporate sponsors. We gain a lot of knowledge transfer from them. They have identified a number of different best practices, and they have a lot of institutional knowledge uh, and resources to bear. In my role, um, I previously was a program chair, and I worked really closely with the NASCA staff to develop our Spring Institute and to do a number of our research projects. Uh, Some of these research projects have been um, incredible efforts. Uh, We had one with Accenture and NeoGov um, about recruitment and retention in the the state workforce. We had another uh, effort with McKinsey surveying chief administrators in a number of different activities and efforts with respect to technology and innovation and also with our uh, real estate. These are uh, research papers that we didn't have to pay for, but we worked hand in glove with these corporate sponsors on. And so I had a lot of fun being program chair, and I now have the honor of being the newly elected president of NASCA and just started uh, the first year of my two-year term. Dan, as you reflect on your career in public service, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I think that a couple things that I've realized, it's been very helpful for me um, not to just focus on being a subject matter expert. I think oftentimes people in state government kind of pick a department and stay in that department, I think that can be very career-limiting. I think it's really important for people to bounce around different departments or different functions to gain different um, skill sets and perspectives. I also think it's really important 
to focus on those skill sets and not just program expertise. I know it may not sound very sexy, but it's really important to know how to run operations. So for someone to know a bit about contracting, to know about budgeting, HR policies and practices, how IT runs or just general knowledge about IT, project management skills, those types of things are really important. If you have that kind of administrative or operational background, that's going to launch your career and you can go into any type of department. I also think it's really important to be nice. When you work in government, even in a state as big as California, it's really a small world. Everyone ends up knowing everyone. You develop a reputation. So it's important to uh, maintain your integrity, do the right thing even when it's hard. It's also important to not get hung up on rank or levels, but to treat people with courtesy and respect, uh, even when you don't agree with them. I think sometimes people get caught up in winning or losing, but it's more important to just get focused with getting things done. And when you focus on getting things done and not on winning and losing, uh, you don't develop a lot of them. And you can build trust and people don't wonder about your motives or integrity. So that's kind of my general advice for anyone who wants to join state government. But I also think that people need to know that state government can be very dynamic and very rewarding. And that's why I've been doing government for so long. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Uh, It was a really insightful conversation. Uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on, but I'd also like to thank you for your dedicated service to the state of California. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to be on this interview. This has been the Business of Government Hour, conversation with Dan Kim, Director of the California Department of General Services. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. How is the National Science Foundation, NSF, building a pipeline of current and future leaders? What is the NSF's Leadership Development Program, or LDP? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Tracy Bajko and Macy Cox, co-leaders of the National Science Foundation's Leadership Development Program, on the next The Business of Government Hour. That's next week on The Business of Government Hour on Federal News Network.